From my new home office, on behalf of the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm your host and Prindle Institute director, Andy Cullison, and with me is our producer, Kate Berry. Hello. For each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that can make it hard to get along with others at work. And by the way, case is just an ethicist word for story. Now, before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise. But as an ethicist, I can use some of the insights of virtue theory to provide you with some encouragement on your path to being a better anti-racist. And if you like what you've been hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I hope you'll consider doing that. Andy, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, I've been thinking a lot about all of the civil unrest going on around the country uh, related to race, the protests. Uh, I've been somewhat encouraged by seeing people be more proactive and being committed to this idea of anti-racism, particularly people whom you think might not normally be committed or, or think of things in these terms. And I thought, you know, if, if we're serious about anti-racism, it's not just thinking about anti-racism in the political arena, but we should be thinking about anti-racism in, in the workplace as well. And so I thought it might just be good to to use this forum to talk a little bit about anti-racism. I think that's right. It seems like people are having these conversations in places and with others that they've never had them before. And I think the workplace is probably a big one of those that maybe people felt that this is not the time or place for that conversation. And now we're seeing that it absolutely is. And And one of the things that I've been thinking about is, you know, there are some tools or some insights uh, from studying ethics that might help us in thinking more clearly about anti-racism and what it might mean to be anti-racist. And so that's that's kind of what got me interested in doing an episode like this. That sounds great. So where do we start? Well, I suppose we should just start with trying to get clarity on on what that term even means, right? I mean, for some, our, for some of our listeners, they, they may not have even heard that term. So why don't we start there? Okay. So the, the term anti-racism, it's an idea that Angela Davis popularized during the civil rights movement with what's become a very popular quote that's often attributed to her, in which she says, in a racist society, it is not enough to be non-racist, we must be anti-racist. And in fact, there was even a book that came out last year called How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi that I feel like everyone in America is reading, either on their own or sometimes as a part of a workplace thing. You have it with you, right? I do. I have the book right here. And in the introduction to the book, he has a really good passage that actually, I think, unpacks this Angela Davis quote quite nicely. So here's what he says. I'm just going to read it. The opposite of racist isn't not racist. It is anti-racist. What's the difference? One endorses either the idea of a racial hierarchy as a racist or racial equality as an anti-racist. One either believes problems are rooted in groups of people as a racist or locates the roots of problems in power and politics as an anti-racist. One either allows racial inequities to persevere as a racist or confronts racial inequities as an anti-racist. 
There is no in-between safe space of not racist. The claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. So then he defines anti-racism as one who is supporting an anti-racist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. So I, I guess the idea here is there's more that you need to be doing, he would argue, to be committed to resolving racial inequity. And it's not just enough to say not have bad attitudes toward people. It requires action, I think. Yeah, I think that's a good way to, to describe it, is it, it requires action. You've probably stumbled on this quote, which everybody points back to from the Alberta Civil Liberties Research Center. They define anti-racism as the active process of identifying and eliminating racism by changing systems, organizational structures, policies and practices and attitudes so that power is redistributed and shared equitably. So there's a little bit more in that definition, but I think the spirit is the same. He talks about policies, but you might think, well, if you're anti-racist, he's probably using policy much, much broader to include workplace policies, anything, any kind of system or structure that is making lives worse or inequitably distributing power for persons of color, that would be a kind of commitment to anti-racism. So to be anti-racist, it's not enough to just not hold discriminatory views. It requires action and constant energy to dismantle racist structures. Yeah, that's the idea. And, and I think the key word is, is action there. And, and that's where I think some of the things that got me thinking about this and some positions that people hold in ethics that, that got me thinking, you know, there might be something here from some of the literature and ethics that, that might help folks get a better grasp on what anti-racism might mean for them. The thing that struck me when I, when I see how folks talk about anti-racism, they tend to talk about it, I'm going to use a technical term, they tend to talk about it in what you might call virtue theoretic terms. So what I mean by virtue theoretic terms is just jargony terms that come up uh, among the people who write about this thing in ethics that's often called virtue theory. And the more I thought about it, I thought, gosh, it, it seems like the folks who talk about anti-racism or write about anti-racism, they seem to have it in mind as a kind of virtue. And it, it got me thinking, you know, what if we did think about anti-racism as a virtue? And the more I thought about it, the more it made sense to me, because a lot of a lot of the things that we would say about the virtues. And these are uh, specific virtues. This is not just all behavior that some people might say is good. These are this is something particular in mind of ethicists, right? Right, right, right. There's a very specific anybody who is doing virtue theory, you might say they, they might have a specific set of virtues that they think are important. And so, you know, they there's it's like honesty, uh, charity, humility. Courage, I think, is one. Courage, yeah, courage is courage. Courage is actually one of my favorites to talk about, and the way in which people talk about the virtues, or when we think about the virtues, the more and more I thought, like you know, why not just make the case? Think think about anti-racism as a virtue that would be a good thing for you to cultivate, like honesty or charity or courage. Right, because I don't think you're just saying that's this is not breaking news on our podcast. Not 
being racist or being anti-racist is good. That's not the point. It's there's these other characteristics of these traditional virtues, right, that maybe they share with anti-racism. Yeah, that's right. And um, I think the first part of this is when people think about ethics, they often think about like doing the right thing. And they, they get very focused on whether or not a particular action was right or wrong. And the virtue theorists say if, if your moral life is focused exclusively on outward action and, and thinking about, did I do the right thing? Did I do the right thing? What would it be to do the right thing? You're missing a very important piece of moral development. And, and what they say is you ought to turn the lens inward and look at yourself and think about what do you do on a daily basis to develop the habits and characteristics of a virtuous person. And what you ought to be doing is cultivating these kinds of habits and characteristics so that you maximize the chances that you do the right thing. So it's it's not about, did I tell the truth today? Did I tell the truth today? Was it right for me to tell the truth today, right? It's, it's Don't think like that. You just like, you wanna be an honest person. Work on yourself to cultivate the virtue of honesty and in doing so, when you find yourself in a situation where there's pressure to not tell the truth, you'll have the internal fortitude to do the right thing. And so be- being anti-racist strikes me as a little bit like this, like it's, it's work to cultivate the habits that are required of you to be honest or charitable or humble or courageous. You might think that's the first parallel between anti-racism and the other virtues is like it's, it's work. You're going you're gonna to have to cultivate habits, characteristics, dispositions. You're going to have to be very intentional about doing this kind of stuff. And that, that, that was sort of the first parallel. So what's another parallel between some of these traditionally considered virtues and anti-racism? Well, uh, another one is that virtues are often not reducible to a set of beliefs or cognitive attitudes. Uh, let's take courage, for example. A lot of times what people would first define as courage is not being afraid of stuff. You see that not being afraid? Right. That's like not having a certain mental state, right? But upon a, a moment's reflection, any philosopher will tell you, and this goes all the way back to Plato, not being afraid can't be what we mean by having the virtue of courage. Because, you know, the soldier who risks his or her life in battle, uh, you know, who falls on the grenade, they might be terrified, right? They might be experiencing an enormous amount of fear. And really, what the virtue of courage is, is not letting that fear dictate your behavior. And so it requires a kind of an enormous amount of effort on the part of the courageous person to resist the temptation of that fear, know what's worth fearing, or or not let their fear lead them to do despicable things. Like that, the ultimate display of cowardice isn't that if someone's afraid of something, it's that they let their fear do horrible things to other people. And so the virtue of courage isn't just a belief, it's a disposition, it's a trait that you have where your fear doesn't master you. And what's useful is when people talk about anti-racism, they say very similar things, right? They're like, being anti-racist isn't just like, it isn't a matter of not hating people of other races, right? Not having negative feelings. It's, it's more, um, probably more appropriate, just like with courage, to say, hey, look, it's not letting your biases get in the way of your behavior and still doing right by people. Or structures of privilege that have, that have made your life uh, in sort of a, a million invisible ways 
better or easier than uh, than someone without that privilege. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like other virtues, constantly having to work at it uh, means that you will fail sometimes. You will be a generally truthful person who will lie when it is convenient. You'll be maybe someone who's generally very courageous, who whose courage will fail in a important moment. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, that is absolutely a way that people talk about virtues, that um, people can in general sort of exhibit these virtues to a high degree, but that you'll that, it, that it's always a process, that you're always perfecting it and trying to get better and better and better at it. And there are going to be times when you fail, right? So you might think of someone as a generally um, courageous person, charitable person, honest person, but we're always going to have temptations to, to not do the charitable thing or not do the courageous thing. And there are going to be times where you give in and you don't, or maybe you don't intentionally give in, you just, you slip up um, and revert to a darker nature. And I don't think we're mentioning this to excuse individual acts of racism or microaggression, but just that no person gets to declare themselves done or anti-racist, that it's this constant working and failing and perfecting and trying to be better, and that there's not a time when you've achieved it that you don't have to work at it anymore. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely right. But when you see folks who write about anti-racism literature, they, they're very upfront about this. They say, look, this, this is a process. Uh, yeah, and if you're committed to it and you, you dive in, there are going to be times where you screw up. You just got to pick yourself up and you know, say sorry and keep moving on. And, and, but don't let the fear of failure in this kind of work prevent you from committing to this kind of work. Be worse to not engage in this kind of work at all than, than to not dive in for fear of failure. And it seems that that fear of failure is particularly frustrating to white people and will mean that they will shut down and stop striving. So it's, it's that frustration that can be such a hindrance to becoming an anti-racist. Oh, yeah. It can be, I think, really frustrating to, to think seriously about how to develop the virtues. In fact, virtue theorists have talked about this, that oftentimes it seems like there are two ways to fail. And so when you try to correct, you, you, you go in the other direction, you fail in the other direction. This goes all the way back to Aristotle. Uh, arguably the founder of the way we talk about virtue theory, he had this idea of the golden mean. And the golden mean was, he thought all virtues are really a golden mean between two extremes that are a different kind of vice. And that that's why it was so frustrating, because if you're at one extreme and you adjust, then you, you go to the other one pretty easily. Um, he, he used the analogy of uh, like a drunken man who's falling off the right side of his horse, and when he adjusts, it goes to the left side um, and falls off the left side of the horse. Think about the virtues as uh, like trying to hit that sweet spot in between. And let me just give you an example. So take the virtue of courage. Having courage is a matter of being very judicious in terms of, you know, what risks you take or or how you, you charge off into the dangerous thing. Now, if you're not judicious at all, you're going to be reckless, right? The person who's not afraid at all or doesn't respond to their fear at all is going to charge into battle even when it's a silly thing to do. And they're, they're never going to avoid danger. And that's not courage. That's, that's foolhardy, right? 
So foolhardy is the opposite vice of cowardice. Now, if you try to be more judicious and be more responsive to your fear, you, you might find it very easy to slip into cowardice and, and just cave into your fear all the time and, and never take action, right? And so, so courage is a matter of kind of hitting that, that sweet spot uh, in between. So how does this apply to anti-racism? Because you're not saying you can be too anti-racist. Right, right. There's this idea of the what you might call the quote-unquote white savior, where in the fight against racism, the white person steps up, puts on the superhero cape, solves the problem, fixes everything. Everybody looks to the white hero as the one who solved this particular kind of racism. And, you know, that just, uh, again, you hear people use this language like it, it centers whiteness in the fight against racism. Part of what Kendi was saying um, in that it's, it's distributing the power equitably. Certain kinds of commitments to anti-racism can be perceived as maneuvers, whether intentional or not, to just grab a different kind of power in the, in the new order of things, right? To, to make sure that you're one of the ones with an enormous amount of power. You're one of the ones who's really sort of part of the movement and, and things like that. And that can be a little bit prob problematic. And it, it doesn't look like you're committed to equitably distributing power. It looks like you're just, you want to go to the other side and try to get as much power in that arena as you can. So you might think there's this delicate balance, particularly for someone who is white and committed to anti-racism. Or if in your readings, you're like, oh, a lot of people think that I should be doing something like this. Do you say, no, that's not the way I want to go about doing this. I want to go about doing it this other way. And does that other way put you at the center, shine a spotlight, satisfy that performer instinct in you to, to be the center of having solved the problem? That's where you might think, no, you're You've gone from the left side, the racist side of the horse, and you've now fallen off on the, on the right side of the horse where you're still positioning yourself as central. And so you might think, so this idea of the golden mean, right? You might think, at least for a white person, there's a delicate balance that's going to be frustrating for you. And you're always going to have to be struggling between being passive and not doing any kind of serious work uh, or going into the kind of work that, you know, really centers you. And taking up all the air in the room. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, being a, more of a collaborative problem and, and maybe uh, looking for opportunities to follow in the commitment rather than position yourself. So another thing, again, the way we talk about virtues, there's a, there's a way to be talking about anti-racism that seems just so remarkably similar to me. The, the thing that um, struck me, the thing that was helpful for me, is when I first started looking at a lot of this work on anti-racism, it's just how daunting it seemed. It was like, to me, it was like, gosh, this is, this is not just reading a book and getting some knowledge and, you know, fixing my beliefs. Constant, consistent, perhaps lifelong effort is being asked. And I thought, that's just, that's just super daunting. But if you position anti-racism as one of the virtues, of course, yes, it's super daunting, as are all of the virtues, right? 
it's it's very hard to commit to a virtuous life. Really, really hard. And it at least uh, I don't. Something about that made me feel better. Right, just being like I, I shouldn't be. Here's what it was. It would be weird for me to avoid taking seriously anti-racism because, or committing to anti-racism because it was hard and daunting and potentially lifelong. Why would it be weird? Well, because it'd be weird to say, oh gosh, it's just so hard to be honest. I don't know if I'm gonna do that. Or, oh, it's just so hard to be charitable. I just don't know. I don't, I don't know if I can really go down that road. Or it's just so hard to be courageous. I'm just, I'm just not gonna go there, right? It's, it sounds really weird to say that about those things. And so thinking about anti-racism as a virtue and all these parallels got me into a position where it got me thinking, yeah, it's really weird to say that about anti-racism too. Yeah, they're all hard and very worthwhile. And weird to avoid because they're hard. I think another thing I know about the traditional virtues is that you are not supposed to brag about having them, right? Yeah, it's, or it's, it's, it's super weird, right? Well, if you... If I went around being like, I told so much truth, I didn't lie even once, I need a pat on the head and a handshake and a hug because I didn't lie, or or I mean, so, with charity, that uh, having to tell everyone about every every dollar that you gave, that would sort of chip away at the integrity of your charity, I think. Yeah. In fact, on charity, there's that expression, don't let the left hand know what your right hand is doing, right? The idea that if you if you give... Uh, and then brag about it. It's nullified. Yeah, it's it's kind of nullified. It doesn't it doesn't have that. It seems like you're doing the charity not because you care about the poor person you're helping. It's that you just want the accolades and the praise. You want to be seen as charitable. And the parallel to anti-racism seems very clear here. That you don't spend your time tooting your own horn about how not or anti-racist you are, that you just do it and that you don't expect praise for it. It's just how things should be structured and how people should be treated. It's not that you've gone above and beyond. Right, exactly. In, in practical terms, this is what explains, you might find yourself in conversations at some point where one person in the conversation seems to be making a big to-do about the anti-racist things they've done today. And and other people in the room getting upset. And you might think, well, why why are you getting so upset at them for just like the, all they're doing is just saying what they did? But if you think about anti-racism as a virtue and how weird it is to boast about exemplifying those other kind of virtues, you might think, yeah, this, this kind of thing, it looks a lot like boasting and it looks like it's somehow nullifying the value. And that you're doing it for to be recognized and not for its own sake. I think the last thing that struck a chord with me in terms of parallels between anti-racism and other kinds of virtues is that exemplifying virtues is often for the sake of other people and you don't stand to gain immediate direct benefit. And in fact, in many cases, the virtuous thing will probably cost you, right? And the more virtuous you are, the more likely you're going to find yourself in scenarios where it's harder to do the virtuous thing, right? We're always under pressure to cave to our fear. We're always under pressure to not tell the truth in certain kinds of situations. I mean, just, there's those kinds of things are just rampant in our lives. And, and the thing is, 
we we know that about the virtues, right? We know that about honesty. We know that about courage. It's 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 not a surprise to us that doing the virtuous thing is costly. And so just like it would be weird to say like, well, I, I gosh, I don't know that I want to commit to being courageous. I mean, what's in it for me? Um, I don't want to commit to charity or honesty. It seems like a fool's, it's a fool's game. So when being introduced to the notion of anti-racism, it could be tempting to be like, well, I mean, that's like, I mean, is it is it my problem? Maybe it's, you know, is, it, is this my battle? Should I really, you know, like, I'm just going to mess things up. And you might not be explicitly telling, asking yourself what's in it for me, but one thing to keep in mind is that a commitment to anti-racism is, is not, is not going to be a lot in it for you directly. Um, and thinking about it as a virtue, you know, might make it seem odd for you to even ask yourself, what's in it for me before engaging in the kind of work that's being asked. I think of all the virtues as trying to lead by example, to instill the things in yourself that you'd like to see each person have, and so that your entire society would be made up of people who lived according to these virtues. And so I think anti-racism is like that, that if if you, you live it because you want to live in a society that's anti-racist, you don't get to sit back and say other people will make the world less racist. You also have to work to make the world less racist. If you're interested in some ideas for how you might think about your work environment and how you could be working toward it being more inclusive and there being more equity in your workplace, visit our show notes page. We've linked to something there that we think you're going to like. Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. I'm Andy Cullison. And I'm Kate Barry. If you have a question about business ethics you'd like answered on the podcast, email me at katherineberry at depaw.edu, and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air. We hope you are staying safe and healthy in this crisis. We also hope you can take some of what we've discussed here and get it to work. If you want to learn more about what we talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org slash work. That's all one word, get ethics to work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It's still the best way for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics.